and welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast from Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed citizen. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and in this episode, we're going to be learning more about the Report for America project, which places talented emerging journalists in local newsrooms to report on undercovered issues in communities. Now, a few episodes back, I spoke with Nina Ellis and Luke Dennis of the WYSO public radio station in Yellow Springs, Ohio, about why they had applied to the project to get a reporter to cover environmental issues. So that was a perspective given by leaders from a media organization. Today, we're going to be learning more about the project courtesy of some of the Ohio-based 2020-2021 Report for America core members who all began their new jobs earlier this month. I have three guests with me, virtually speaking today, and this recording is taking place on the 24th of June of 2020. So we're still very much in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and are carrying out this conversation remotely from our respective locations around Ohio. My guests are Shame Abiram, who's reporting on minority and immigrant issues for the Akron Beacon Journal, H.L. Comorato, who's focusing on public health, also in Akron for the Devil's Strip, and Connor Morris, who's covering poverty-related issues in Cleveland, such as housing, health, and education, for the Northeast Ohio Journalism Collaborative. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. So I guess I'm going to start by asking you each what your backgrounds are and how you came to learn of the Report for America and why you decided to apply to it. Uh, I'll go in alphabetical order. So Shamer, I'll start with you. I learned about Report for America while I was at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. I'm a career changer. I've worked in a few different industries, and um, I've always considered journalism to be a public service, and I've had a career in public service. I used to be a teacher. I've worked in nonprofits, and so it seemed really interesting. I know that there's a really urgent need for local reporting, and so that's how I learned about it. Great. H? So uh, I worked in the food industry for six years while I was finishing up my undergrad, and I was trying to report stories for the Devil Strip. Actually, I was freelancing for them and a few other publications and trying to report stories sort of after shifts and before shifts and trying to find any time that I possibly could to, to tell stories that I thought were important and meaningful in my community and it was difficult. So when I saw this opportunity to be a Report for America Corps member, I saw an opportunity to actually engage with my community in a meaningful way where it wasn't you know, broken up by these long periods of having to be at work in a kitchen. And when I applied, I, I, I didn't expect to get it. I got a BA from the University of Akron from their Williams Honors College in English, and I never went to journalism school. I am sort of still uh, learning as I go. Interesting. Connor, over to you. I have a more traditional journalism background, so I graduated from OU in 2014, Ohio University, that is, with a journalism degree, and I started working at the Athens News, which is a small newspaper in Athens, Ohio. It's a was twice a week. Now it's just once a week, kind of alternative newspaper, but uh, still hard-hitting news. And so I worked there for six years, and then this opportunity came up, and I had already learned of Report for America before. I had been a finalist for a job in Kentucky last year, and I just missed out. And so I 
had always had a great appreciation and respect for the program because journalism is a public service and it's needed now more than ever. So I was really excited to apply again this year and uh, really, really thankful that I was picked up for this position. So Connor and H, it sounds like you went to college in Ohio. Are you native Ohioans? Yes, I am. I actually grew up in a suburb of Akron called Cuyahoga Falls, and I moved to Akron as an adult. So I live about 15 minutes from where I grew up. I'm from Southern Ohio originally, from Marietta, and then I went to high school up in Worcester and lived in Athens for a while too. Right. And Shama, did you have a pre-existing connection to Ohio or are you a transplant here? Yeah, so I'm from a city called Diyarbakir in the Kurdish region of Turkey, and I moved at a young age. We moved to the Netherlands, and then I eventually moved with part of my family to upstate New York. Okay, and so you've just moved to Ohio for this job, right? Yeah, I was in Mississippi before. I was working at an alt-weekly in Mississippi. So how does the application and selection process for Report for America work? What do you have to do, and what do they... What do they do to you, so to speak, in order to get employment in this way? Connor, I'll start with you. Well, first off, there were around, somebody else can maybe correct me if I'm wrong, I think there were like 1,800 applicants this year or more. So it's a pretty competitive process, but you do an interview with Report for America if, if you get selected out of the initial pool of candidates. And then if they like you enough, then they kind of, uh, you pick out the newsrooms that you or at least offer suggestions for the newsrooms you want to work in. Or you can say, just send me where I'm most needed. And then if the host newsrooms like you enough, then you interview with them. Depending on the news outlet, there might be one more after that, or they could make a decision after that and and decide whether or not to pick you. Okay, so I imagine it was a very similar process for all three of you. Was it by newsroom or was it by subject area that you picked where you wanted to go or the options that were of interest to you? H, I'll put this to you first. So I had already been freelancing for The Devil's Strip. They at least were at the time sort of a small arts and culture publication and have since really grown and are now actually the first cooperatively owned local news organization in the country. But at the time I was freelancing for them and I was picking up some culture stories and some stuff sort of covering race and identity in the Rust Belt and and that kind of thing. And I knew that I wanted to stay here. We're a Rust Belt town through and through and often young people, they don't have the kinds of opportunities here that they would elsewhere. And, you know, I had been struggling with the same thing, you know, do I leave? Where would I go? And over the past couple of years, sort of as a young adult, I came to the decision that I didn't want to go, that I wanted to stay here. I think there's something about the Rust Belt that sort of is just in my bones. And I knew that I could contribute meaningfully to a dialogue about who we are and what our place is in the world if I stayed and if I continued to write for the Devil Strip. And I just am so deeply attached to our publication's values and how how often they choose to place humanity over profit. And I was just so impressed by that. And so I requested specifically to be placed in the Devil Strips newsroom. Um, we're also very small. I think we're, I think we're like a, a team of 11 or something. And I knew I wanted to work in a smaller newsroom like that. They had two positions available, economic development and public health. And 
I knew right away that public health was for me. So that was a no brainer. Okay, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that in a minute. But before I come back to that, you said that you were so impressed by how this publication often chooses humanity over profit. Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? So when I was in undergrad, I had a a classmate and she was writing for the publication for the Devil Strip. And when the Devil Strip first was published and there were these rumblings about this new magazine, I was really hopeful because there are a lot of gaps in coverage here and there are so many, so many populations, so many stories that just go uncovered. And there were these really, really exciting rumblings among young people in my neighborhood and in my classes at the university. That This was something that if you called them and said, hey, I want to write about this thing, that they would say, sure. And that was something that was so incredible to me. That was not something I had experienced before, that this was a community-centered publication. And that if you wanted to write, that they would try to help you do that. So this woman in my class, she had dealt with addiction and she wrote a personal essay about her recovery. And obviously we're a Rust Belt town. We have a huge, huge opioid issue. And it was M. Sophie Franchi who wrote this piece. And she wrote this personal essay that floored me. And it floored me that they published it. And she wrote about recovering and having her children and being able to be present in their life. And it was a completely different narrative than we had seen before about addiction and recovery and the opioid crisis and all of this. And that's when I knew. That's when I knew that a publication that would publish an essay like that was serious about changing the narrative and building something that was really deeply rooted in the community itself. That's really inspiring. And we'll post a link to the story that you've been talking about by M. Sophie Franchi in the notes that accompany this podcast. Shema, what about you? Because you obviously came from a different state. And so were you looking all over America at the opportunities available? Obviously, you know, at the end of the day, it's about whether you're a good fit for the newsroom and they're a good fit for you. The way I approached it was I looked at different beats. Beats are just a term that we use in in journalism to discuss different subject areas. I'd been reporting on criminal justice issues and local government, and um, I've always been interested in immigration reporting. I've never done much of it, but, you know, as a former immigrant and refugee, um, I have been pretty frustrated by a lot of the mainstream narratives and approaches around immigration reporting. And so um, this opportunity sort of came up by chance. I got a phone call from RFA asking um, whether I was interested in this paper. Uh, The pandemic had sort of disrupted (laughs) this entire process. And so I learned about the Akron Beacon Journal a little bit later, but I'm really glad that I did. And what kind of a publication is it? We're a daily newspaper. I am working with several colleagues to help build out more in-depth coverage of immigrant, Black, and minority communities here in Akron, particularly around issues of housing and income inequality and jobs. Right. Thank you. So, Connor, tell me about how you selected where you wanted to go and the beat that you were going to be covering. 
Yeah, so there were several opportunities in Ohio where I already was. So I, I basically was like, you know, I'd like to stick around in Ohio. I was a finalist for a couple different publications, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer was the one that said that they wanted me. And during this time, there was a lot of um, turmoil and, and change with the Cleveland Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com, and I, I won't get into that really too much here. And also the pandemic hit as well, too. But that position morphed to be part of a regional news collaborative based in Cleveland of a group of newspapers. And Cleveland.com is, is one of them. They're supporting my position in this collaborative. But it basically, I'm the only full-time reporter with the collaborative. And so I'm writing stories. And then any news outlet in the collaborative can pick the story up if they wish. It's meant to be kind of a way to foster creativity and working together because, you know, competing news outlets don't typically play so nice together. So it's kind of a new thing. The collaborative itself is funded by Solutions Journalism and the Knight Foundation. So it's a kind of a new approach. There's more of these collaboratives popping up across the country. And actually, the Devil Strip is part of the Northeast Ohio Journalism Collaborative as well. The main focus right now for me and for the collaborative is covering the coronavirus and how it's impacting poor folks and marginalized folks. That beat might shift a bit if things get better, you know, the next year. But for now, the coronavirus is obviously exposing a lot of inequities that were already there in healthcare and just poverty in general. Obviously, the coronavirus is impacting people of color, specifically Black people, a lot harder. And so that's something that I'm very cognizant of in Cleveland, because Cleveland is, I believe, 53% Black. It's also definitely a very um, segregated city in terms of, you know, economically and, you know, redlining and everything else. So these are things that I'm taking pretty seriously. Sorry, what was that term that you use? Redlining? Yeah, redlining. I probably can't describe it in the most succinct detail, but uh, basically racist housing policies, segregating neighborhoods over the past hundred years and even before it, obviously, with the legacy of slavery. There were racist housing policies that forced people of color, black people especially, into certain neighborhoods where the housing stock was a lot poorer, so their overall health outcomes are worse, over-policing in those neighborhoods too. You'll see in certain cities, St. Louis is a good example, Cleveland as well, where you know there'll be one street separating a rich majority white area from a poor majority black area. Okay, thank you. So you've all taken up these new positions within the last month. I'm curious to know what it's been like moving to a new job in the middle of so much kind of unsettling stuff going on in the world around you. Shema, you've had the furthest to move. How has it been for you? You know, it's been really good. I drove up here from Mississippi and I decided to report on my way here. I spent a few days in the Delta. The Delta was actually really interesting. At one point, I ran into a bunch of Mississippi lawmakers during a social gathering, and they let me tag along and photograph them. And then I stopped in Nashville and Louisville to cover the protests and the aftermath of the protests. And, uh, and then I got here. I started officially working on June 15th. So far, it's been really great. The community is really open. I'm kind of going on like a listening tour going to different neighborhoods, speaking with community leaders, just trying to learn about the issues that people care about. Connor, how about you? I had to move from Southern Ohio, so it was a bit of an interesting change because I was covering a very rural area. 
Still dealing with issues of poverty, though. Athens County, where I lived, is the poorest county in terms of the overall poverty rate. And it was a majority white area, too. So I've been very cognizant of that and my own biases as a white person covering a majority black city with issues that are touching upon race quite a bit. I've been trying to do my best in the first few weeks here, like Shama mentioned, just to listen to people and make sure that I introduce myself and let people know that I'm here for them to try to help as best I can, basically. H, it sounds like you were already based in Akron. Did you have to make big changes or was it a fairly smooth transition? I am actually really grateful for how smooth of a transition it's been. I thought it would be much more difficult. I didn't have to move. I live in Akron in a neighborhood called Highland Square. It's known for being sort of like an artsy neighborhood. Historically, it's been a queer neighborhood, which is wonderful. I'm grateful to be part of the community in this neighborhood, and I didn't have to move. I live about five minutes from the Devil Strip offices, so that's been pretty wonderful. Oh, that's great. So now I guess I want to ask you what kinds of stories you're working on. H, I'll come back to you first of all. So I'm covering public health for the Devil Strip. And right now we're primarily covering COVID-related things. And a lot of what Connor was saying is that, you know, Akron is no exception to the national statistics. Black Akronites are being disproportionately affected by COVID. They're much more likely to contract it and they're much more likely to die from it than their white counterparts. So that's a big part of what I'm focusing on right now, making sure I'm getting into communities and talking to people about what they're seeing happening versus predominantly using uh, public health officials or elected officials as sources. That's a big deal for us at the Devil Strip, and it is important for me personally to make sure we're getting out into the communities. So right now I'm working on a piece about how Black Akronites are disproportionately affected by COVID and why that's happening. And why is that happening? What kind of conclusions are you reaching? Oh, man. There are social determinants in terms of public health that are deeply, deeply tied to race in our country. So Black Akronites, because of centuries worth of racist policy, are more likely to work frontline jobs, to work jobs in the service industry and the food industry, which makes them much more vulnerable in terms of contracting COVID. And then those things sort of compound. So you have a, a whole population of people who are much more likely to work frontline jobs that are high risk and earn low wages, and they're much less likely to have access to affordable and culturally competent healthcare. I think a lot of what I've been hearing from when I do talk to officials is that there is this really huge gap, not only in access to healthcare, but in the people who are actually providing healthcare. So if you're a Black person, and even if you have a good job and you have good insurance and all of these things, across the board, I'm hearing that doctors tend to spend far less time with Black patients in particular than they do with white patients. So even when you seek care as a Black person, you may not be getting the care that you need because these systems are sort of designed to marginalize and keep Black folks at a disadvantage. And that's no different in Akron. So we're covering that. Um, there have been two murders in the past weeks. So gun violence is going to be something we're covering and how that sort of intersects with race and income level and all of these different things. So it is really complicated. You said you're going into these communities. Do you mean you're literally physically going into different communities and talking with people face to face in this time? I'm kind of curious about the practicalities of how you're actually doing your work. 
I've gone out a few times. I'm trying really hard to be very, very responsible about where I go and who I see and how I protect myself and others. I think that's a responsibility that we have as journalists to make sure that we're not inflicting any kind of harm. So I've been out a couple times, but all the gatherings that I've been to have been really small. Most people are wearing masks, are social distancing. A lot of what I'm doing uh, when I say I'm getting into communities is collecting people and having them sit on a Zoom call with me or talking to them on the phone. It takes a little more work, I think, and a lot more effort certainly on the part of people who are interested in talking to me. So so I do try and get out a little bit, but I, I'm also being really careful. Thank you. So Shema, you're in the same city where you're reporting on minority and immigrant issues for the Akron Beacon Journal. Are you hearing some overlaps between your work and H's after hearing her discuss what she's working on? Yeah, I think we're approaching it from a similar place. Right now, I'm working on a few collaborative projects on housing in Akron, on policing. We've been doing a series on different aspects of policing, from training to diversity and recruitment to residency issues. I think for me, ultimately, what I hope to do is write for these communities that I'm covering and also hopefully facilitate some kind of deeper dialogue between those populations and the rest of Akron. You just mentioned that you're doing this series on policing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, I'm still in a phase where I'm talking with people. I think one thing I've noticed is there seems to be a sort of disconnect between what elected officials and public officials are saying and what people on the ground are saying. I think ultimately, you know, maybe they want the same thing, but it's this problem of translation. The way also that I've been approaching being in a completely new place, I don't have the institutional knowledge that H and Connor might have. I'm still building my historical background on this region. But one of the things that I've been trying to do is thinking about the reporting that I'd done in New York and in Mississippi and trying to find some entry points. So, you know, I'd reported on the NYPD in grad school and I'd done a lot of work around criminal justice and gun violence prevention approaches in, in Mississippi. And so you kind of, you know, each place is different, but there are some situations where you start to notice patterns is what I'll say. You start to notice some patterns uh, and approaches. And so whether it's like approaches to policing or complaints from the community. But yeah, I think right now it seems like in general, people want the same thing. They want to feel safe in their neighborhoods. They don't want to be racially profiled. They want to be understood. They want to be approached, you know, as neighbors. One woman that I interviewed, she was making a case for why police should live in the neighborhoods that they serve. And she said it's important that law enforcement get to know the people in these communities as neighbors first and not as suspects. And so I thought that was really powerful and important. Absolutely. Connor, what about you? You talked a little bit about what you've been working on since you moved to Cleveland, but can you tell us a bit more specifically some of what you're covering? There's a wave of evictions that's kind of washing over the country right now as moratoriums on uh, eviction hearings are being removed as the country starts to you know, continue to open back up. In Cleveland, that moratorium ended on June 15th. And so the local housing court is hearing eviction cases again. And there's a whole constellation of nonprofits, government agencies, etc., 
that are trying to kick things into high gear to try to prevent those evictions, which is is positive. But after analyzing the evidence quite a bit, it just seems like it's not going to be enough. So the city of Cleveland and Cuyahoga County are both providing rental assistance programs. So about $18 million or so total. But just looking at the depth of the problem in Ohio with like 24% unemployment in Cuyahoga County a month or two ago, and Ohio in general, more than a million people filing unemployment claims since the pandemic began, it just doesn't look like it's going to be enough. And so there are some greater calls for a statewide rental assistance program to help people pay their back rents and to just kind of keep people in their homes. So that's been really interesting. And I talked to somebody who, uh, a woman, mother of three, who had received rental assistance. It was a program that was existing prior to the pandemic. And she was telling me a lot about, um, she was on and off struggling with homelessness before the pandemic began. She was actually in a shelter when the pandemic hit and she left the shelter to go live with her sister. Not everybody can do that. She was, I guess, one of the lucky ones. She left the shelter because she was worried about the health of her kids, basically, because it's a congregate setting. She's finally received housing, so she's moved in and is doing really well. I'm going to be going out and taking some photos of her uh, later this week, so looking forward to that. It sounds like you're doing some work in person. Are you also doing remote work, or how are you balancing those two? Is it similar to what H is doing? Yes. So just briefly, I go out to get photos and to do some interviews that you can't really do otherwise, but most of it's been phone. So I've been trying to introduce myself to all the various nonprofit uh, leaders and government agency leaders in the area by a phone. I have gone out to some like coronavirus testing sites. I went out to like a music venue a couple weeks prior to do a story about how music venues are operating, uh, trying to limit it, but uh, some things you just can't replace. So you, you just got to uh, wear a mask, stay distant, be very safe about it, and limit your time spent out on the job, but I still do a little bit of that. And Shayma, what's your approach to the actual nitty gritty of reporting? I've been out a lot. You know, I wear a mask. I've covered some protests. You know, I I take my safety and the safety of others very seriously. I think I also feel that on some level, it's sort of an occupational hazard because we, we have to be out in communities. I'm trying to find more creative ways to go about that and constantly gauging everybody's level of comfort. You know, I feel more comfortable talking to somebody on a street corner than I do going into a business. And I try to limit my time indoors. But I've been walking around neighborhoods, trying to talk to people who may be sitting outside of their homes or stopping in to speak with business owners. And so a combination of that and making phone calls. And when you cover a protest or you cover a Juneteenth celebration, especially right now, given that we don't see as many people out in public space, it can be a really good opportunity to meet people in the community, especially for me because I'm new here. So as I said, this podcast is part of a program called Democracy and the Informed System. I guess I'm going to end this interview by asking you each to give your views on why local journalism is important to democracy and an informed citizenry. Shema, do you want to go for it first? Sure. Um, <laughs> well, that's a heavy question. I think the hope is that through our work, we inform the public who can then make decisions, such as voting, to impact policy so that the policies um, that they're living under help them and reflect the kind of world they want to live in. I can tell you in my time reporting 
in Mississippi. And I'm going to mention Mississippi because I had been there for a little while, longer than I've been here. You know, it's these daily battles. Like, this is what local reporters do. They they go out and talk to people in the community or they attend, you know, a county board of supervisors meeting, as I did in Mississippi about a year ago, and learned that the county was destroying 23 years worth of public records without any input from anyone. <laughs> and so um, what do those documents contain? What kinds of histories do they contain? And how does that continue to impact the lives of the people living in that community? So I think you need people to be there on the ground to hold elected officials and, and you know governments accountable while constantly taking a pulse on what the people on the ground who are living out the realities of these policies, how they're faring and what they want. Great. Connor, what's your take on that question? Local news outlets have been kind of decimated over the last few decades uh, due to the changing business model. So that's why I do think what Report for America is doing is really great because they're helping to restore some of that, some of those decimated newsrooms uh, and also with an eye towards undercover topics and covering communities of color and, and their struggles as well in this country. So I think that in general, why local news matters is uh, we're looking out for people. People have their own struggles, their jobs, their kids. They're so busy with their daily lives that it's up to us to be watching out for them, specifically with regard to how government money is spent, the actions of powerful institutions like the police. And so without us, people aren't going to be knowing what's going on. And no amount of vitriol coming from the top of the country with cries of fake news is going to diminish how important that service is. And and it really is a public service for sure. However, you know, we do need to recognize that there has been a lot of harm done by journalists and journalism in the past, especially towards communities of color. So there needs to be kind of a new resurgence, which I'm very proud of Report for America for being part of in young journalists, especially, I think, kind of re-examining our role and how we are covering communities and how do we do the least amount of harm while still continuing those those high-minded, you know, positive missions that I mentioned earlier. Right. And H, do you have thoughts on this? Connor and Shema just gave the most lovely answers, and I don't think I disagree with a single thing. I do want to add that I think a big part of what I do and what my job is supposed to be as a local journalist is that I need to be able to loop people in to the processes that determine their lived realities. And I think it is really easy to get bogged down. Like Connor was saying, you know, people have kids and they have lives. And when we are able to sort of bring them in to that conversation in a meaningful way, I think that changes everything about how we live in communities and how we interact with one another and how we choose to move forward. So I think it's absolutely vital what we're doing here. And I'm so proud to be a part of a Report for America. And and when we can help people to feel empowered to speak up, to have difficult conversations with themselves and with one another, I think that's ultimately good. That's great. So I've asked everything I meant to ask. Is there anything any of you'd like to say that I didn't give you the opportunity to say or you'd like to have been asked? I would just be curious, H and Connor, your thoughts about some of the conventions of journalism, what we're learning right now. 
One thing I've been thinking a lot about is this notion of journalistic objectivity. And, you know, we've all sort of touched on the ways in which this field and journalists have harmed communities of color. And so I'm just curious what kinds of conversations you are having in your newsrooms, if any, or what kinds of conversations you're having with your colleagues outside of work or your friends and how you're taking this moment to rethink some of these, you know, what we've been taught are core tenets, right? I personally, I think objectivity is a myth. (laughs) This like this obsession with objectivity is a product of the fact that newsrooms have historically and still today um, been staffed by people who have not experienced systemic oppression or don't realize maybe that they have. And so I like to think more in terms of fairness and impartiality. But anyway, I'll shut up. That's a really interesting observation, Shema. Thank you. H and Connor, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, H, you want to go first? Oh, uh, sure. This is something we've talked about extensively in our newsrooms and is a little different for me because I did not go to journalism school. But I, I too, think that this idea of total objectivity and impartiality is, is sort of just a myth. You know, we all come to this from our own lives and our own experiences. And for me, as a queer person and a non-binary person, I have a very deep sense of gratitude for the queer people and non-binary people who came before me and a sense of responsibility to respect and uplift their legacies. So on a personal level, I'm most certainly, uh, I'm sorry, it's difficult to explain. We have talked about it extensively, and I don't know how much that helps because it is sort of a personal journey. And so when I'm coming up against things where other reporters and other journalists are saying, well, is it appropriate to say that Black Lives Matter? Is that a political statement? You know, and I think part of navigating that is not being afraid. And I most certainly, as a reporter, I'm not afraid to say that I believe that Black Lives Matter. And I believe that all human beings are worthy of like a dignified, joyful, healthy life. To me, that's not a biased political statement. That's something that we should all sort of be on board with. We should all be standards for the way that we treat people and the way that we talk about generational trauma and oppression and all of those things. So you do come to it with your own perspective. And I think that's, that's important, you know, and I think it can be beneficial. So those are ongoing conversations. And a lot of it is learning to be confident in your choices and learning to not be afraid to do or say certain things. Kana? I definitely agree that objectivity is a total myth and the idea that like you're not influencing the things that you're covering and writing about is just silly, you know, that your own personal experiences aren't coloring that. I found that there are a lot of things that I learned in journalism school that I've had to unlearn or interrogate. Just one example, in journalism school, you're taught, oh, never go off the record with people. And I think while that's true for interviewing elected officials and people in power, I think that you really should be going off record with everyday people when you approach them just so that they feel comfortable with you coming up to them, especially me as a white person. There are some intersections, too, because I was covering very poor Appalachia, and those people are also very marginalized in a lot of ways. Yes, it is a majority white region, but they are struggling with access to clean water and food and a lot of other issues that communities up here would recognize 
So out of the six years that I reported at the newspaper that I was at, I think I learned a lot of things that translate pretty well in terms of like, we need to be making sure they understand what we're writing about and why and why we're not trying to jam them up, so to speak, or to say, oh, look at these poor people. Like the lens that we're viewing their stories from is one of compassion and empathy. And I do agree that like journalism ethics are key. We need to make sure that we are independent. We need to make sure that we are telling the the truth, you know, with a capital T. But um, the truth is is subjective and we need to recognize that as journalists. Otherwise, we're going to just completely fail at what we're doing and continue to replicate some of that harm that we mentioned earlier. Right. Well, that was a really great question, Shema. Thank you very much for raising that point. Yeah, thanks, Shema. Yeah, thank you. Well, listen, thank you so much today for joining us. It's been really fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us, Rachel. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. It was wonderful. Again, my guests today were Shema Byram, who's reporting on minority and immigrant issues for the Akron Beacon Journal, H.L. Comarata, who's working on public health, also in Akron for the Devil Strip, and Connor Morris, who's covering poverty-related issues in Cleveland for the Northeast Ohio Journalism Collaborative. You can find out more about them and their work, as well as about Report for America, at the links given in the notes which accompany this podcast. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this is Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast from Ohio Humanities, which is the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here don't necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. The program is part of Democracy and the Informed System, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative, the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership, and to Sokolovskymusic.com, which provided the opening and closing tracks. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.